turn in your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9. The Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 9, starting in verse 14. I've said a few times during this series on following Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew that we could entitle many of these messages with the same title. Who does he think he is? Have I said that before? Have you heard me say that? Who does he think he is? So I just went and did it this week. That's the title for today's message. Who does Jesus think he is? Because it strikes me, especially in this section right after the Sermon on the Mount, that everything Jesus does highlights who Jesus is. Everything Jesus does is kind of like an argument for who Jesus is. That's why Matthew includes them in his theological biography, like last week. When Jesus healed the paralytic and at the same time forgave his sins. You remember that? Who does Jesus think he is going around forgiving sins? By the way, um, Rob and Bev told me last week that it's okay that I stole their truck as long as I take on the payments. <laughs> okay? Who does Jesus think he is going around forgiving sins? Or the week before that, when Jesus spoke to the storm and it had to obey, or when he spoke to the legion of demons and they had to obey, who does he think he is? Or when he was healing all kinds of diseases. Remember that night in the house? They brought every kind of disease to him and not one of them was a stumper. Every disease had to listen to what he had to say. All of these miracles, all of these actions are like big signposts pointing at Jesus and saying, look who he is. And all that time, Jesus continually keeps calling people to follow him and live a life of discipleship. He says, follow me. Last week, he said it to a tax collector named Matthew. And here he is writing a gospel. Now, in the middle of all of these miracles and invitations to discipleship, there is a little story that's kind of different from all the rest. Some friends this time, some allies, disciples of John the Baptist, who was, if you remember, in prison at the time. These disciples of John the Baptist come to Jesus and have a question for him. I don't think it's an attack. It's not a trick question or some kind of a trap. At least I don't think so. It's not the kind of like tricky questions that the Pharisees ask trying to trip him up. They ask Jesus, verse 14, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? It's a fair question. And Jesus chooses to answer their question by telling us all just who he thinks he is. Let's pray together and then see Jesus' answer to their fair question. Savior, Savior, while on others you're calling, don't pass us by. That's our prayer, Lord. We want you to bless others. We want you to bless Messiah Baptist down the street. We want you to to bless all the Christians meeting in our country and all the Christians meeting around the world today. Meet them. Give them exactly what they need this morning. But in doing that, don't forget to stop here. Don't pass us by. Lord, we're listening to your word. We're inclining our ears. Help us to incline our hearts to hear your message. To see, maybe for the first time and maybe for the millionth, but so necessary, who Jesus is. 
who he thinks he is, and who he is. And what a difference that means for our life. Would you do that, Lord? We pray it in his name. Amen. If you remember, last week we left Jesus at a party. There was a big party. I don't know if you, do you spell that party? There was a big party at the house of Matthew, who had just recently been a filthy rich tax collector slash extortionist. And at this big party, there were a bunch of current tax collectors and notorious sinners. And Jesus was eating with them. He was spending time with them. He was enjoying their company and loving on them. He was extending mercy to them. He was calling them to repentance and faith and salvation and discipleship because they needed it. He was, he was a sin doctor, and they were the sin sick. And so that's why he went to them. And he was at this party. They were doing all of this over dinner, feasting and enjoying and eating a big meal together. And Matthew tells us that John the Baptist's disciples were scratching their heads. Remember, John the Baptist was famous for eating locusts and wild honey, right? He wasn't into the big dinner at the Golden Corral, right? In fact, his followers had been taught how to fast and that fasting was really important. So they come to Jesus, verse 14. Then John's disciples came and asked Jesus, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And you know what fasting is? Wally was talking about different meanings of the word fast throughout history. And in, in sometimes to fast means to hold something really tight, right? Like in our song, He Will Hold Me Fast. That doesn't mean He will hold me while I'm running, right? It means to hold fast. And we use the word fast for going quickly somewhere. But that's not, that, this is neither of those meanings. This is voluntarily giving up food. I know, right? Whew voluntarily for a spiritual reason giving up food and john the baptist's disciples come to him and they say are we missing something i mean we're we're known for fasting and and the pharisees who tend to know their bibles they're known for fasting but you jesus guys not so much what's going on Now, before we see how Jesus answers, let me ask you how you would answer that one. Do you ever fast? If you do, why do you? If you don't, why don't you? It's not like Jesus never fasted, right? I mean, Jesus, he holds the Guinness Book of World Records for fasts. 40 days and 40 nights. Anybody else does that? They're what we call technically dead, right? 40 days and 40 nights with neither food nor drink. And at the end of that, in Matthew chapter 4, he told us that, and then it said, and he was hungry. (laughs) Yeah, I think he would be. So he did actually fast from time to time. He knew how to do it. His disciples probably did it on on the Day of Atonement. And he taught his disciples how to fast. We read about it already in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. And there Jesus doesn't say to not fast. He says, just don't do it wrong. 
Don't do it the wrong way. Don't do it to impress other people. He says, when you fast, do it in secret so that your heavenly Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. But fasting was definitely not what Jesus was known for. If he was known for anything, it was for dinner parties with sinners. And it wasn't what his disciples were known for. They're eating, they're drinking, they're feasting, and they don't have somber looks on their faces. They're not all sad and fasting and depriving themselves. Again, they probably did so one day. the, The law of Moses called for a fast one day a year. That was the only fast that was required on the Day of Atonement. Other types of fasting were voluntary in the law of Moses. So they probably all did that because they were keeping the law. But that's it. Most of the time, they were enjoying themselves and with sinners. So John the Baptist's disciples say, what, 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 what's, what's going on here? How would you answer that one? Now, I mean, the Pharisees were probably fasting for all of the wrong reasons, right? They were the poster children for doing it the wrong way. The Pharisees were fasting to be seen by others. They were the targets of Jesus' critique in the Sermon on the Mount. They already had their reward for other so-called acts of righteousness, for all their so-called acts of righteousness. But the disciples of John, they're different, right? They were good guys. They probably fasted out of repentance and sorrow for their sins. John taught people to repent for the kingdom was coming. The kingdom of God was near. The king was on the way. That's probably a big part of why John's disciples fasted. But here's Jesus, and he's like, pass the chicken nuggets. Mmm, these are good. Is that your potato salad? Can I have another helping? So they ask Jesus, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus answers by telling them who he thinks he is. One word, the bridegroom. Look at verse 15. Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. So Jesus likens himself to a bridegroom at a wedding. Do you get his analogy? Do you feel it? His question is, should everybody be all sad at a wedding? Have you ever been to a wedding? How do people act around the bride and the groom? Are they all like, it'll be okay, man, it'll be okay? (laughs) Or, oh man, I hate this stuff, I wish we didn't have to all be here. No, everybody is insanely happy for the couple, aren't they? Big smiles, break-your-face smiles, ear-to-ear grins, and lots of feasting. Lots of joy and rejoicing. Jesus says that's what it's like to have him around. He's the bridegroom. We aren't living in the John the Baptist days where the king is coming. We're living in the Jesus days when the king has come. Do you know who also talked like this? John the Baptist, right? In the Gospel of John chapter 3, John the Baptist basically says he's the best man at the wedding. But Jesus is the groom. He says, you yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but am sent ahead of him. The bride, which is the church, right? The people of God. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. 
He must become greater. I must become less. It'd be pretty inconsistent for Jesus and his disciples to major on mourning when they're announcing the inbreaking presence of the kingdom of God. That's a reason to rejoice. Now is the time to rejoice, Jesus says, because he is the bridegroom. However, Jesus says, verse 15 again, the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. When will that be? Well, at least at the cross. That was a time when the bridegroom was taken away. Isaiah 53, 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. But I also think it's true right now. When the bridegroom is in heaven and we are waiting for his return. So rejoicing is appropriate for us now. Feasting is appropriate for us now because we have the king and we have the kingdom. But right now lament is also appropriate. Because the king suffered and knows our suffering. And right now longing is also appropriate. Rejoicing, lamenting, and longing because we don't have the king right now. He's not here now in all of his fullness. We're, we're, We're back to waiting. We're waiting for his return. When we get to the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is going to use this language again to talk about watchfulness. He'll liken himself to a bridegroom who may come at any time and how we need to be ready for him. That's who Jesus thinks he is. He's the bridegroom. You know that's a big deal? Because do you know who the bridegroom was in the Old Testament? What what was the language of bridegroom used to describe in the Old Testament? God himself. This afternoon, get out your Bibles and read Isaiah 62. Read Hosea chapter 2. And see who referred to himself as this bridegroom who was going to come for the people of God. God refers to himself as a bridegroom. A bridegroom is full of love. A bridegroom comes to get his bride. And wherever the bridegroom is, there is joy. So let me ask you again. Should we fast today? Yes and no. Or no and yes. If we're going to fast, it's going to be different. We shouldn't fast like the Pharisees. Nobody should fast like that. Never should have. And we shouldn't fast like John the Baptist's disciples because we don't live in that era of anticipation in the same way they did before. But we're free to fast today. Because we have a bridegroom, we can fast in joy. And we, and we also still are waiting for the bridegroom. So we have joy, but we also lament and we also long for the return of Christ. If that's what our fasting means, then we probably should do some of that today while we wait for the bridegroom to come. The the best book I ever read on fasting is called A Hunger for God by John Piper. I don't know if any of you have ever read this before. Very helpful. It calls this passage, Matthew 9, the most important words on fasting in the Bible. And Piper says, In this age, there is an ache inside every Christian that Jesus is not here as fully and intimately and as powerfully and as gloriously as we want him to be. We hunger for so much more. And that's because Jesus is the bridegroom. Now in verses 16 and then 17, Jesus switches things up and uses two different metaphors. Look at verse 16. 
No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. The picture's pretty clear. You don't use the old with the new, or things break and go wrong. A new piece of cloth will shrink and re-tear the mended garment. They don't go together. New wine will ferment and rupture a brittle old wineskin. That's not a chemistry experiment you want to watch. Not if you want to drink that wine. You need new for the new, Jesus says. Now, I think that Jesus is saying that the old kind of fasting, like, like the Pharisees fasting, but more like John the Baptist fasting, doesn't work now that Jesus has come. The Pharisees' fasting certainly doesn't work these days if they thought they were impressing God with their acts of righteousness. It doesn't work that way. It never did. That's what our Sunday school classes were talking about this morning. But the new has come. Jesus has come. The king has come. The bridegroom is here. And if we're going to fast, it needs to be a new kind of fast. One that keeps all that in mind. Does that make sense? Verse 18. While he was saying this, a ruler came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. Notice his faith. Just like that centurion from chapter 8, just like the paralytic and his friends at the beginning of chapter 9, this guy believes and his faith is rewarded. Verse 19, Jesus got up and went with him and so did his disciples. What do you think is going to happen? I mean, this little girl's dead. Have you ever gone to a funeral? Did the, person at the, did the dead person at the funeral get up and walk out of the funeral home? Ever seen that happen? Yeah, I've been to the hospital where there was really sick people and they got up and they, they, eventually, and they came home. But Jesus is heading there like he's going to do something about this dead girl. Well, we don't get to find out right away what happens. Verse 20. Just then... A woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, if only I touch his cloak, I will be healed. Can you imagine? For 12 years, she has had this reoccurring problem. And as uncomfortable as it was, it also made her what? Unclean. Ritually unclean. She might as well have been like the leper in chapter 8 unclean and and so she risks everything and she has faith she it comes out in her courage if i only touch his cloak i will be healed verse 22 jesus turned and saw her notice that he saw her take heart daughter he said your faith has healed you and the woman was healed from that moment that's amazing power that's amazing faith Because she never had that problem again. But that's not the main story. Remember where Jesus is headed. He's going to a funeral. And he's going to do something about it. He thinks he's going to do something about it. Verse 23. When Jesus entered the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd, he said, go away. The girl is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. And you would too. Because you don't call in the professional mourners with the flutes and the wailing and all that. You don't pay the people unless the person's totally dead. 
But Jesus said that her death is just like sleep to him. She's going to get up again. And not someday, today. Who does Jesus think he is? He thinks he's the resurrection and the life. Right? I mean, he doesn't say that here he, like he will at the tomb of Lazarus. But that's what he's saying by going to do this, right? And by saying she's not dead. She's just asleep. Jesus is saying that he turns death into something just like sleep. That he can wake someone up from death. Do you believe that? That Jesus can wake somebody up from death? And this ruler guy, the other gospels tell us his name was Jairus, he believes it. Do you believe it? Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? That Jesus can wake up dead people? I love that Jesus does this, not for some big shot. I mean, Jairus might have been something of a big shot, but this is his daughter. Wasn't even his son. In this culture, there was a big difference. Jesus is healing. He's helping the last, the least, and the lost, and the unclean. You know, there was nothing more unclean than a dead body. This is uncleaner than leprosy. This is uncleaner. That's not a word, but it is today. Uncleaner. Uncleaner than an issue of blood for 12 years. This girl is dead. Verse 25. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand. And she got up. News of this spread through all that region. In John 11, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And then he says, do you believe this? And I think he's asking us that question today. Do you believe this? I do. Verse 27. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he'd gone indoors, the blind men came to him and asked them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? You see that belief again? Do you believe? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith will it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, See that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. Who does Jesus think he is? Well, he thinks he's the same guy that these blind guys think he is. He thinks he's the son of David. He's the Messiah. They want him to heal their blind eyes. This afternoon when you're reading Isaiah 62, turn over to Isaiah 35 and see what things will be like when the son of David, the Messiah, comes. When God comes and makes everything beautiful again, Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6 say, Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. What does that sound like? It sounds like what happens when Jesus comes to town. And the same question is being asked, Do you believe? Well, do you? These guys did. And they couldn't keep it a secret, even though Jesus told them to. 
Jesus didn't need the extra publicity, but they couldn't help tell others that they had been blind and now they could see. They had to talk about the Messiah's amazing grace. Verse 32. While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. What's that sound like? Sounds like what I just read, Isaiah 35, right? The mute will speak. The crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But, listen closely, the Pharisees said, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Shots fired, right? Well, they couldn't argue with the miracles. The miracles were there. The miracles were facts. But they could dispute the meaning of the facts. They had to dispute the meaning of the facts or they would have had to put their faith in Jesus as the Messiah and they did not want to do that. Instead, they said that Jesus was a tool of the devil. Can you imagine? Here's the the question is, who does Jesus think he is? It's who do the Pharisees think he is? A tool of Satan. The question Jesus is asking is the same one of us today. Do you believe? Because the Pharisees did not. These kinds of interactions are going to lead to the arrest, trial, and crucifixion of our Lord Jesus. Jesus will have more to say about this in just a few chapters. Chapter 12, they're going to have this kind of same altercation, and Jesus is going to get back up in their face. Right now, what's important to see is that Jesus is asking us to believe in him as the Messiah. You have to look at the evidence and you say, which one do I believe? He is what we need. He's the good shepherd. Number four and last. Look at verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Now, we just looked at this passage a few weeks ago before the Good News Cruise, so we won't go over all the details again today. But we can see who Jesus thinks he is. He thinks he's the answer to these poor people's problems. He thinks he's the shepherd that these people need. Is that how we see him? Is he your shepherd? Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. That was our Good News Cruise verse for this year. Where he said, I'm the good shepherd. I'm what you need. You're a sheep. I'm a shepherd. This is what you need. And here he says, ask the Lord of the harvest to send people out to bring them to that shepherd. Because Jesus is everything we need. And if we have him, we shall not want. Right? Psalm 23. He's the shepherd of Psalm 23. If we have Jesus, we have everything we need. 